2: on this episode of newt's world
1: we choose to go to the moon we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things not because they are easy but because they are hard because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills 50 years ago one small step for man became one giant leap for mankind but now's come the time for us to make the next giant leap and return American astronauts to the moon, establish a permanent base there and develop the technologies to take American astronauts to Mars and beyond.
2: About 20 meters off the surface. Tango Delta. Touchdown confirmed. Perseverance safely on the surface of Mars, ready to begin seeking the sands of past life. I've been fascinated by space since my earliest childhood when I would read coming books about Martian invasions of Earth. In the last year, I've admired Vice President Pence's leadership on the Moon to Mars mission plans. And I reveled at the successful launch of the SpaceX rocket from the Kennedy Space Center at Cape Canaveral, Florida on Saturday, May 30th, 2020. So you can imagine my pleasure at welcoming my guests Dr. Adam Steltzner, who is the chief engineer for the Mars 2020 Project Perseverance rover at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. He's here to tell us all about the latest mission to Mars, but also to help us better understand this remarkable institution, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and what we might expect over the next few years. He and I are both fortunate in that We're living at the beginning of the golden age of understanding planets beyond Earth. Adam, I'm really delighted to have you join us. But let me ask you, I'm curious, how did you first get interested in space? Well, I was a poor student,
1: and so I was actually playing rock and roll in the San Francisco Bay Area. And got curious about the stars and the motion of the constellation Orion in the night sky one evening. And that one thing led to another. And eventually a Ph.D.
2: in engineering physics. You wrote a book in 2016, The Right Kind of Crazy, a true story of teamwork, leadership, and high-stakes innovation. Now, how much of that teamwork and leadership did you learn from the rock band? Well, not much. I learned a little bit about people from
1: being on stage and playing rock and roll. But most of what I learned about leadership and collaboration, I learned on the job at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory from my colleagues and those who I worked for.
2: And I gathered that when you had noticed the constellation Orion was in a different place and you began to really get intrigued, you learned that the astronomy class you wanted to take had a physics requirement. And as I understand it, that's when you discovered that you were really good at math and physics. Was that kind of a shock to you? Yes, it is. I certainly convinced myself and all of my teachers and
1: parents that I was a poor student and really an artist and not good at analysis. And in fact, that's wrong. And I discovered that through really marveling at the fact that the universe is governed by a set of
2: laws. If I remember correctly. Your undergraduate degree in mechanical engineering is at University of California, Davis, which if I remember correctly, is one of the great agricultural research systems in the world. I love Davis in the
1: Central Valley there, a big ag school, California's in some sense the the breadbasket of the nation, and my uncle is a farmer, a grape farmer, now a grape and citrus and pistachio farmer, but he started out as a a winemaker, and Davis has got a famous wine program, so I was sort of famous in the city for my last name even though I couldn't make wine myself.
2: You went from there to maybe the preeminent intellectual center in the country at Caltech and went then from there back to University of Wisconsin-Madison to get a PhD in engineering mechanics. How did you go from all that to starting to work for NASA?
1: Well, I went down to Caltech. I started really looking into geotectonic plate interactions and geology, and I think I'm more naturally an engineer. And so I decided to leave Caltech after my master's, after I started my PhD, and I met the woman who would become my wife and wanted to stay in the area. So I just got a job at JPL, because Caltech runs JPL, and it was sort of an accidental stepping into my dream job. I can remember when I first started having a bit of a crisis because JPL had been a place I would have imagined reaching somewhere late in my career after many
2: years or maybe a decade or two. Can you just take a minute and explain to people the Jet Propulsion Laboratory is unique in the NASA system because it's not actually a NASA lab. It's actually a contracted Federal Research Center. How does that change things?
1: The General Propulsion Laboratory, I am a fire at will private employee of Caltech, and we are an FFRDC, Federally Funded Research and Development Center, that is contracted to NASA.
2: If I could stay on that topic just for a minute, because I have some friends who've spent many years looking at our space program who actually think that your model of the Federally Funded Research Center is a more powerful and produces a more competent result than the traditional federal bureaucracy. And they've recommended that we actually move a number of the other labs into something like the Jet Propulsion Laboratory because you've had an astonishing level of success at JPL in consistently getting things done, far more, I think, than any other facility in our NASA system. Do you have any gut instinct? Is there a net advantage to being a federally funded research center rather than part of the traditional system? Well, I don't
1: know whether it is the
2: organization structure or the
1: type of employment that we are underneath of the contract or whether it might not be just the snowball rolling downhill effect, more work to get more work which makes you better. You know, we are changed, all of us, every single one of us is changed through work, the work we do and we have been lucky enough at JPL because there are so many places in our solar system that are available to explore to have worked hard at exploring those places for so many decades that that work builds upon itself and puts us in a, yes, a unique position in having such a wealth of experience and therefore such well-honed skills. Not that we don't learn daily from our partners in the other NASA centers, and not that we don't have a lot to learn in the future, but certainly our experiences to date have put us in a position to garner the success that we did a few weeks ago in February.
2: So when did you get involved with Mars. I mean you're now at JPL. Do you enter JPL doing Mars or did you do other things first? Great question. I came into JPL in
1: nineteen ninety one, which is frighteningly coming up on thirty years this October. I was in the spacecraft structures and dynamics group and I was working on Cassini Huygens, which was a mission to Saturn, and I can remember thinking back then that oh my God, it's going to launch In 95, 96, and it's going to be 14 years before Saturn, it was inconceivable for me to think on those timescales back then. But lo and behold, that mission has come and gone. So I worked on Cassini. I helped on the Galileo mission. I then started working on Mars missions. I helped a little bit as a dynamicist on Mars Pathfinder, and then I took on larger leadership roles on the Mars exploration rovers, the 2004 landings of the rovers Spirit and Opportunity, solar-powered rovers, important contributors, because they taught us that Mars had once been wet, which we know from here on Earth is a big deal, because where water is, we find that almost always life springs up, so it opens the question, had Mars ever been alive? And then, of course, I'm the chief engineer for Perseverance.
0: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW report void. prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking. When we're not 100% sure yet what to write.
1: Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor.
0: And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu.
1: Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen.
2: When you launch something like this, how does it feel when it works?
1: Oh, (laughs) well. The personal investment of not only myself, of course, but of literally thousands of American contributors be then inside the Jeff Propulsion Laboratory, we think about three thousand or so lab members have charged to this effort over the eight years of development. But then thousands of others scattered across the nation contribute. And this investment, personal investment, can be all-consuming. And when you are successful, it's interesting. It's a strange mix of incredible relief and incredible joy and sadness in that you've been running a race. You've been working with this team for the better part of a decade, and that work has changed. In some sense, that work has stopped. The flavor of the work that you're doing when you're designing and developing and testing and making sure the spacecraft will work. That's done. And you're now into a different kind of work, operating spacecraft, with a mostly different team. And so it's a complicated set of emotions, but there is no doubt that the investment that so many at JPL and around the nation have made is
2: so great that it really marks a big point in one's life. You now have with the Mars 2020 rover cameras that provide much higher resolution, and the public can actually look at them. What was it like when it lands successfully and you're looking at these much higher definition images for the first time? A mind-blowing,
1: Newt the images are what makes it real. Not only for myself, I know this for all the team members, right? The numbers that come down, the ones and zeros, literally, that tell you the rover's done its job. They, well, they take the front part of your brain to put together and really believe it to be true. But those images, and now, the super high resolution, 21 megapixel color images that we're getting down are mind-blowing. They really put you at the landing site. And they are an undeniable assertion of the success that the nation has had and the success that we've had through these very difficult times.
2: Where can people go to see this?
1: Mars.nasa.gov will take you to the set of Mars missions. You select the Perseverance mission and you'll find You can go to raw images and just look at all the images as they come down. They they spend about a day or two in the pipeline getting processed and dumped on to the website, unedited, for all of us to see. Or you can go and look for specific images given captions and explanations. Videos are there. You'll find videos of the landing. We put some off-the-shelf, commercially available video cameras, these aren't sophisticated things. These are ruggedized industrial cameras, very similar to the ones you might use in your automobile when you put it in reverse. You know, nowadays, all the fancy cars have got your ability to look out through the, your license plate to see that you're not bumping into something as you back up. Cameras quite like that. We put a few of them on the rover to see if we could capture the entry, descent, and landing sequence. And we didn't know because it's unlike building a space-rated camera, which is expensive and takes a lot of time. These were just, might work. And they did. And they are amazing, amazing images, amazing videos of the rover being lowered below the descent stage in the sky crane maneuver, and the the rover looking up at the descent stage in the sky crane maneuver. Uh, Parachute inflation. I mean, there's a whole bunch of great, great videos there. Mars.NASA.gov we will get you to it.
2: We'll be sure to link to the Mars mission on our show page at newtsworld.com and encourage people to go and look at it. And I'm curious, what have we learned that has surprised us out of the latest rover landings? Since we started putting rovers on the surface of Mars, we've learned
1: that it was wet. We've learned that that water was there for a long time And that the chemistry of that water was habitable for life as it evolved here on Earth. And that that wet, habitable environment was present on the surface of Mars about the time that life began here on Earth. So thus far, we've now cataloged that both Mars and Earth were habitable for life at the time that life began on Earth. So that's a big deal begs the question, did life also evolve on the surface of Mars? Is it possible that life is less rare, that it's not just here on Earth, but maybe in other locations? Perseverance is the first leg, really, in a three-leg epic journey to bring samples back from the surface of Mars to Earth to allow scientists to investigate them here. And that holds the possibility of unlocking that final question of whether Mars ever was alive and whether life might be more common than otherwise.
2: This is such a sophisticated project. How many people does it take to develop and implement something like Perseverance? Well, a lot. During the height of the project, we had about a
1: 1,000 people at JPL working on it. But, of course, those are mostly engineers. I'd say like three-quarters of the bar engineers. You know, I'm an engineer. We are just building the robot. We are building the instruments that give the scientists the measurements and the observations that they need to prove out the theories that they have for you know, planetary evolution, life evolution, et cetera. So, about a thousand folks were working at the lab, but you know in industry, out in Colorado, in Maine, in Massachusetts, in Arizona, on curiosity, we counted thirty seven states. We haven't finished our tally for perseverance, but the majority of the nation's states are involved in this effort, and so we think all in tens of thousands. Of Americans, participated in this.
2: The process then builds on itself. So if you go back to Sojourner and you consider the lessons you learned, you keep adding levels of sophistication. Are you already starting to work on the next lander? Yes. <laughs> Funny you should mention that, Duke. Yes, I
1: am. Before coming to speak to you, I just got off a meeting about the next legs of that mat- of our sample return effort. There's something called the Sample Retrieval Lander, or SRL, and we're starting to work on that. And there's something called the Earth Return Orbiter. We're starting to work on that. We forged a partnership with the European Space Agency, and they're going to provide some of the pieces of spaceflight hardware, specifically the Earth Return Orbiter. And so, we're starting to work on the next effort. It's sort of relentless. You know, we landed on the 18th of February. And so it's not been long, but we're right back
2: in the saddle. As I understand it, you will end up with a very complicated system, one to land and to retrieve. Do You then retrieve up to the satellite and then from the satellite send it back to Earth. Now you're really making it as complicated and as exciting as the landers were. This next challenge that you've given yourself, it seems to me, is vastly more complicated. Well, you're right on the money there. It is the
1: greatest robotic challenge that humanity will ever have undertaken. Perseverance, the rover that we just landed in February, will take samples, take a rotary percussive coring drill and take core samples of rocky material from the surface of Mars. It will seal those samples in hypersterile sample tubes for return to Earth. The next mission lands a lander with a rocket on it, a MAV, a Mars Ascent Vehicle. And we put the sample tubes in the top of the MAV in a vessel we call the OS Orbital Sampling Container. And we put the sample tubes, at least 20, maybe 30 sample tubes, in the top of the OS. And we launch that. It looks like about the size of maybe a soccer ball or a basketball. That gets launched into orbit. And then it's retrieved from orbit by this orbiting spacecraft called the Earth Return Orbiter and a piece of equipment on it called the Capture and Containment and Return System made by Goddard Space Flight System and the Langley Research Center and the Ames Research Center together, all managed out of JPL. That collects this batch of samples, flies it back to Earth. We put that basketball-shaped piece in a Earth return capsule and then land it onto the surface of ancient Lake Bonneville in Utah at the Utah Test and Training Range outside Salt Lake City.
2: What year do you think this will happen?
1: Well, we're trying to keep the initiative, and we'd like to try and get them back, if we can, before the turn of the next decade. At the earliest, it might be 29. At the latest, it would be in the early 30s, 31, maybe 32. So about 10 years from now, anywhere from 8 to 10 or 12 years from now.
2: For people listening to us right now, they have a reasonable prospect that in their lifetime, there'll be samples from Mars being analyzed here on Earth to determine in part whether or not there was life on Mars at one time. We've been building our capability of long distance robotics for, I guess what, 30 years now. And it's now gonna reach a truly amazing culminating point in terms of our understanding of our solar system. You know i sometimes pinch myself
1: and wonder what did i do to deserve the honor of being able to be doing a job like this right this is the cutting edge of what we can do it's a privilege to be able to try my best at it
0: Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're
2: listening. When you think back to your first days at JPL, and you think about the technology you worked with then, and you look at the technology you hope to develop over the next decade, isn't it like multiple revolutions? Not just one revolution, but multiple, scale of change in your lifetime yes and it's interesting that it doesn't all come necessarily
1: from space like there's a ebb and flow you know we are using well those cameras that we videoed our entry descent landing sequence were off-the-shelf cameras that are spit out at high rates essentially free We are using, in the helicopter, Ingenuity, we took a dual-rotor counter-rotating helicopter with us on Perseverance to test out and demonstrate aerial mobility in the thin, thin Martian atmosphere. And inside that helicopter is a chip that is out of a cell phone, a visual processing chip and a camera out of a cell phone. And again, that's hard, tough, and costs essentially nothing right? It probably cost 25 cents to make this piece. And yet, we're looking to see an innovation that we're trying out is the use of commercial office self-electronics. The consumer electronics industry is so titanic. It operates on such a scale that its technologies rapidly get tested in a way that we could never test our technology. Now, there's 100,000 people using, for instance, a particular chip in a cell phone, and you know that it's well-debugged, that you understand its reliability, and you've got great statistics on it. So now if you can use some technologies from other locations, beg, borrow, and steal as needed, that's one of the techniques we use to innovate in our applications
2: at Mars. So if you're talking to a high school class How would you describe to them the potential they have in their lifetime to do things in space and to learn from space and to have space be an even more exciting part of what they learn and what they experience?
1: You know, when I think about what we're doing when we explore space, I think of it actually as a gesture of who we are as a species as a gesture of our humanity, we are the curious ones. We're the tool makers. We figure it out. We figure out what's going on around us. I mean, everything you could imagine. Space exploration is is an extension of that activity. And so when I speak to student groups, I remind them to revel in their curiosity, keep their intellects sharp, question each other and themselves, things they think they understand, to make sure that they really know what they know and know what they don't know. And that process makes all of us better. It's a sport in some way, a definition of our intellectual capacities and capabilities. And I think it's a bright future in that. I hope that the youth of today will find themselves staring at an ever-expanding set of vistas and exercising their minds and
2: their intellectual might as they have never done before. Let me switch gears on you for a second. Your ingenuity helicopter, when will the experimental flight test be underway? We're in the process of what we call
1: commissioning the vehicle. The vehicle shows up, it's actually running a different set of software that will run on the surface, the software that got it there, the cruise software. We've now transitioned. We want to be very careful. There's no way to reboot or to turn the vehicle off from Earth. You can always unplug your computer or power cycle it with your finger, but we can't touch our rover. So we have a pair of computers, we change the software on one, check it, change the software of the other. That process is complete. We're in the process of checking out our instruments made all of our deployments. Anyway, this will go on for about a week or so. And then we'll move on to look for an appropriate site for the helicopter. So one of our first efforts is this helicopter experimental flight test that you referred to, which I love the, that phrase, by the way. And so we'll be deploying Ingenuity somewhere in the next month or so depending on how quickly we find an acceptable airfield the approach is we will ingenuity is underslung under our belly and we will deploy it in a takeoff and landing zone that they call an airfield and it's a big patch we want it to be flat we want it to be relatively rock
2: free for these first experimental flights we anticipate we will be there somewhere in the next month so it would be possible by going to the same website for people to follow Those flights? Yes. Following the entire mission,
1: all the images, all the progress, mars.nasa.gov.
2: Okay, I want to take you one more zone that's parallel to the progress you've been making, but very different. And that is the rise of recoverable rockets, which is a project that Bob Walker and I had worked on in the early 90s and could not get NASA to figure out how to do it. Of course, a decade ago, private sector people, starting with Elon Musk, began to actually solve it. I'm just curious, if you had a chance to go into space, either to the station or some new thing, would you take it? Mm, That's a good question. Depending on the destination, I would love to
1: look back at Earth from the vista of space. I have young children and some fair obligations here on Earth all of that risk-risk balance would have to work out for me. But there's no doubt that every human who traveled into space and looked down upon Earth has had their perspectives radically changed. I would love that opportunity. I am excited about new space industry and specifically the economics that are happening in launch services, driving prices down. And so I think it's a good time for that.
2: That's great. And of course, your young children will almost inevitably live in an era where going into space will begin to be pretty close to routine about halfway through your life. It's just amazing. Listen, I want to thank you. I think you're the kind of person whose dedication has not only brought you great satisfaction, but has helped the United States immeasurably and has laid a base of knowledge for the entire human race. It's a great privilege to me to be able to chat with you and to have you share so much. And I really wanna thank you personally for being dedicated and for the time you've committed, the life you've committed. Adam, thank you so much for spending time with us today. You've truly been a remarkable person and I think you're gonna continue to be remarkable and you are a role model for lots of other Americans. Well, Newt, thank you very much
1: for those kind words. I consider it an honor and a privilege to find myself in the position that I am. You know, I hope to make this nation and this world a better place through the things that I do on a daily basis. Thank you for appreciating it, and I thank Providence that I have the opportunities to be here and do this.
2: You can read more about the Mars mission on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeart Media. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Lorenzi Sloan. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penman. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.
0: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast.